This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today, we're going to cover the book Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me by Carol Tabris and Elliot Aronson, a book focused on the reasons why we justify foolish beliefs, bad decisions, and hurtful acts. Peter Atia recommended the book in Tools of Titans. He is a former ultra-endurance athlete. He also was one of two people who suggested our 10th book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. So we've uh, we've met him before here in our, our podcast. Uh, he's Tim Ferriss's go-to doctor for anything performance or longevity related. And I wanted to highlight a quote from Tools of Titans uh, where Atiyah talks about this book and, and the reason that he suggest, suggested it. Mistakes were made as a book about cognitive dissonance that looks at common weaknesses and biases in human thinking. Peter, uh, and then this is Tim talking about Peter talking about this book. Peter wants to ensure he goes through life without being too sure of himself, and this book helps him to recalibrate. The book was written by Carol Tabris and Elliot Aronson. Carol's a social psychologist, lecturer, and writer, and Elliot is an eminent social psychologist, scientific researcher, teacher, and writer. I thought they had a, a interesting little tidbit in the back of the book in their um, their section of of, uh, of, of acknowledgments. And uh, they, they said, we decided the order of authorship of this book by flipping a coin. It's that balanced a collaboration. So that was cool. So we'll, we'll head right into uh, the overview and, and initial reactions and then, and then work our way into to some of our, our favorite quotes. So my overview, uh, I, I thought the book was, was helpful on many fronts. Uh, it hits on, on some of the topics we've seen in in some of the other books of titans one of those being small decisions uh the the daily habits the daily decisions that we make and how those those impact a lot of times it's not the 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 big bangs but it's the it's the the small seemingly insignificant decisions that we make uh it's also it's also initial decisions there was a a a few different parts of the book where they talked about Nixon, and in one part in particular, uh, a guy by the name of Magruder started working for Nixon, and uh, Magruder went all in on the, um, uh, the the bad stuff that went on. The dirty tricks. The dirty tricks. But well, um, I am not a crook. There was there was like a a, a part uh, of meeting Nixon and just getting so enthralled by Nixon and. Um, if in that initial decision, and he saw some stuff right at the beginning that he, that he didn't like this Magruder guy, but he was just enthralled by the whole thing and being able to work uh, for Nixon and that sort of thing to where even though he saw things, and it wasn't even necessarily with Nixon at that point, but someone else in in, uh, in the group uh, saw things he didn't like but just kept going. And he, he said, or the authors of the book said that uh, it was that initial decision that, that – led and and it made the the decisions after that a lot easier 
so the importance of of making the right initial decision, which which yeah, isn't always slope. easy. Yeah, but um, yeah, one of the things I really liked about this book is 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 the image of the the pyramid, the decision pyramid. You know, you start standing on that moral high ground, stand standing you know on the on the tip of it, and then you make one decision and you step a little brick down, and then by the end you're all the way at the bottom of the pyramid and justifying, you know, horrible things pretty easily. Mm-hmm. So what uh, what were some of your initial reactions to the book? Well, first of all, I mean, this 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 book, uh, as someone who's taught in the social sciences, taught taught my share of sociology classes and so on, uh, this, this book is right up my alley. I mean, dealing with things like confirmation bias and selection bias, and you know what they refer to throughout the book as self-justification, the uh, all the effort that we make to get ourselves uh, to protect our, our own self-image and our own narrative of who we are and all that stuff. You know that that stuff is stuff that you know th- this is professionally right up my alley. I mean, I this is what I'm constantly dealing with. It's what I'm always wanting to get students uh, to to think about, get people to think about. It's something that I'm constantly conscious of in my own life. And, you know, always concerned about, okay, am, am I thinking this because of confirmation bias? Am I thinking this because... And this book does a great job of breaking down in a popular way how the, how the research has... Uh, how, what the research looks like in this area and how people need to be aware of all of the ways that their shortcuts, their mental heuristics can, cor- can short-circuit and cause all sorts of issues in terms of judgment, all sorts of problems in terms of how we perceive other people, you know, in, impact the way we remember things. All of these sorts of things are things that, that ordinarily people don't think about, people aren't even aware of, and then they impact, dramatically impact the way that the, the decisions that we make, the way that we think about other people, the way that we think about policies in 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 the uh, in the political sphere, all sorts of stuff, and you know this is, I mean to be honest, this is the this is the this is the kind of book. This is a book that I wish was on you know those summer reading lists for the required reading lists for high schools, you know that they always do. This is the kind of book that should be required summer reading for every high school in the country. Because this is the sort of stuff that that people don't realize about how their memories work, about how they think about stuff. And once you realize it, and once you actually buy it, once you actually understand that this is how your mind plays tricks on you, and this is how you you know these are these are uh, flaws. Now they're they're they can they can actually serve good function in some ways, but they're flaws in the way that we think about so much, and they limit how we think. It's only once you start to realize that that you can get beyond and, and fix some of that stuff and, and, and again, think scientifically, as they talk about, to avoid the kind of, um, of uh, epistemological arrogance that we're all prone to in thinking that, you know, well, my perspective's right because that's what I remember in all this. And remembering that, well, you know, actually my memory may be flawed by my perspective mm. or maybe that other person who takes a different view than I do on this one thing, the reason isn't because they're a bad person. It just might be that they remember something a little differently or they have a little bit of a different way of of thinking about it that isn't 
just wrong because they're evil, but rather because they're a person just like me. And well, we have limitations in these things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've long thought that, you know, teaching the, the, the cognitive biases uh, that exist and uh, and basic statistics or uh, it, less so the math itself in terms of statistics, but how to un how to understand statistics, what what how do statistics work and, you know, how to how to break down, how to understand a scientific article, how to uh, assess claims and things like that. Statistically minded thinking should be taught in every high school. I mean, it, it just should be taught in every high school everywhere. Along with how to do a budget. Yeah, exactly. That's another one. I mean, but this is these are those, those things that that people need to have understanding of how this works really to function adequately and function well as uh, as as natural as uh, as citizens. I mean, these are the sorts of things people need. All right. So, 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 I mean, th that, uh, this along with, you know, the, uh, with rhetorical fallacies, uh, how to make a budget, statistical thinking, this stuff is critical. So last week you, uh, you had a lot of problems with what, what he wrote about the, the historical accuracy, uh, was the, was the research good in, in this book? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, 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 uh, this book is cutting edge social science research, uh, you know, they, this is uh, whereas last week's uh, Chinggis Khan and the making of the modern world, you know, I did uh, ding it a good bit because the historiography, the historical method and all that and many of the facts were really sloppy. It wasn't wasn't especially well done in that regard, despite being a really good narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this one is very much the opposite. I mean, this this book uh, has it, it sets the it sets a good a good uh, standard for how to take academic or scholarly research and and put it in digestible form for a popular audience. I mean, they've done an excellent job with that throughout this book. It, 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 a few times it could have been uh, shortened just a little bit or, you know, they, they uh, uh, do it a little differently than I would have. But, uh, you know, this is very well done in, in that regard. Now, granted, on, on the flip side, there are there, there is a bit of a crisis in social science research, particularly in uh, in psychology where a lot of a, a lot of studies have been uh, have been called the results of a lot of studies have been called into question due to p hacking uh, and, mm. and and other uh, sorts of uh, scientific malpractice basically where uh, so, where the, the the people who were running studies basically were uh, were using uh, statistical sleight of hand and 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 so on even oftentimes even without realizing they were doing it which is perfectly ironic and makes the point of this book yeah <laughs> i mean that's even where those studies don't uh hold up necessarily as well now they this book ex shows exactly why that sort of thing can and does happen but uh, there's a bit of a crisis in that but but even where they've uh they some of the studies you know that they that they reference some of the individual studies may not end up holding up. I mean, we don't, I don't know exactly which ones, uh, you know, I, I didn't spend too much time with that, but some of them may not end up holding up lots of them. Like, you know, the famous Milgram study. I mean, that stuff is about as established as you're going to get in the social sciences. I mean, it's, it's cutting edge. Okay. 
Good. And, and what's uh, what's really funny, I just finished reading book 36, which is the the power of persuasion and a lot of overlap with uh, with this book. And they, they go into quite a quite a large section of that. Uh, the shock um, uh, test thing. Um, and they, they said it was that test was repeated in many other countries and it was never over. It was never under 50 percent of the people who wouldn't do the shocking or, or, or asked to, to leave early. Uh, so in every country they've done it in every test, it's always been over 50%. Um, so I, I found that interesting. And then the original, they said the original point of that, of that test was to see the, 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 the thought, the thinking was that the, the rate would be a lot lower in the U S this is, this is according to the, the power of persuasion book. And so they thought they would see a, a lower percentage of people that would go along with the torture, uh, a, a torturing of, of other people. And then they wanted to go to Germany and do the same test to see why in the German culture the, the Nazis could have come out of that. But they, they, didn't, they didn't do that second part of the test because the rate was so high in the U.S. in, the, in that first <laughs> test that it was like, oh, okay, everybody's like that. This is a human condition. This is not Germans versus everyone else. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's learning that people don't, you know, commit these atrocities and so on because they're, they're monsters, but rather because they're just like us. And that's the really, really frightening thing that, that, you know, a lot of people don't like to come to grips with. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, uh, we'll start out with quotes. I'll start out with my, my first one. Um, and it's toward, towards the end of the book, something we did can be separated from who we are and who we want to be. I thought this was a really interesting quote because it came in a part of the book where they were talking about one of the one of the guys who one of the the U.S. Army guys who was in Iraq and was in the prison where they where they were doing the torturing of the uh, of the Iraqi prisoners Abu Ghraib. And so he was one of the guys that was that was torturing these these uh, these prisoners. And he now goes around and he speaks at high schools and, and things like that and, and talks about what he did. Uh, but he, he talks about it in the past tense. He, he says, I tortured. He doesn't, he doesn't go around saying I'm a torturer. And so this, this idea that something we did can be separated from who we are and who we want to be. And that, that's been part of this guy's healing process of, of almost, almost of a, a, a confession of a way of, of look, I, I did this. I'm being upfront that I did this. Um, I'm not trying to hide it, but that, that's not who I yeah, am. Yeah, it's not me. It's not me. Not, uh, you know, yeah, I, I did those things, but, uh, you know, it's it certainly that's not who I envision myself as. Mm hmm. Well, for my first one, then I'll, uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, I think this one was on your list too. But if, if it is, I'm, I'm going to steal it from you because uh, it's one that I, I really liked, and that is doubt is not the enemy of justice. Overconfidence is, and that's one of the things that they really spend a lot of time on in this particular in this particular book is uh, is looking at how our overconfidence about what we think we know what we think we remember causes so many problems because that stuff's more malleable by our image of ourselves and by the, by the stories that we tell ourselves. And it can cause 
serious problems, breach of justice. And that's one of the things, I mean, the, this, this book, the, the chapter that, uh, that this comes in is on uh, miscarriages of justice where people got convicted of crimes that they didn't commit as a result of, in, in large part of this self-reinforcing what they continue to call self-justification where people get an idea in their heads or they, 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 they uh, latch on to spe- uh, one specific detail of something and then everything else that they, that they find goes mm. toward confirming what they already knew or rather what they thought they already knew. Yeah. That, that was a great chapter, the law and disorder. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and a frightening one, really. Pretty scary, too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. They, they do a great job of highlighting why, well, really, I mean, this, is, this goes back to why the U.S. system was set up so that beyond a re- if, if, if it's not established beyond a reasonable doubt, somebody gets off. And, and of course, we try, we've tried all sorts of ways to get around that. And, and the ways to get around that are the things that lead to all sorts of breaches of ethics and all this. And they are the things that end up getting innocent people put behind bars or put to death. And they do a great job of showing how that works. And, you know, and yet we always are trying to, as they point out, you know, we, we're, we're always trying to eliminate doubt as though doubt is the thing that, that prevents justice. And they're saying, no, 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 no. It's actually overconfidence in what we think we know that leads to miscarriage of justice more often than not. It's not a matter of not having of, of, of the, oh, well, you know, since we're, we're letting doubt govern things, then we're not going to get justice carried out. No, that's not really what the most likely result is there. And, and, and actually, it was interesting to consider this in light of some of the current brouhaha about uh, the uh, about uh, recently Betsy DeVoe uh, rescinding the dear colleague letter to higher ed. And this is something that, you know, obviously again, I'm, I'm uh, pretty familiar with on a, on a couple different uh, ends, but uh, rescinding the dear colleague letter about uh, uh, sexual assault on college campuses. And previously the dear colleague letter had said, had told college campuses to no longer apply the standard of guilty beyond a reasonable doubt but rather to make their decisions on the basis of a preponderance of evidence. So, you know, don't let the fact that you doubt that you have some reasonable doubt on whether or not this person was actually a perpetrator of sexual violence. If even if you have doubt, even if you have reasonable doubt, if you think that it's a little bit more likely that this that that something uh, that some form of sexual violence happened, then take action. Well, it, that 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 is uh, there's a problem in lacking due process there. And the reason that those due process uh, pieces exist to begin with is because of these exact things that are covered in this book in terms of the way that memories can be faulty, the way that all sorts of things can result in miscarriage of justice. And frankly, we could, we should, should get more concerned with those things, not less in our pursuit of justice. All right. My next one is the mind wants to protect the soul wants to confess. Ah, you that made me think of uh, crime. You, you stole crime, that one from crime me. and punishment. Oh, did I? <laughs> oh, yeah, I see. Oh, yeah, it's down there. Yeah, well, why don't why don't you read the full? Why, why don't you why don't you read the full? Because I I I kind of cut that that one a little bit. Yeah, yeah. The fuller quote is: "The mind wants to protect itself from the pain of dissonance with the balm of self justification, but the soul wants to confess." I love it. Yeah, it's just it's excellent. Yeah. 
Yeah. And we and we all do tend to do this. I mean, that, that that's the thing. We all when we, we all tend to, to defend our own self-image by bowing up when something else from the outside is presented as evidence. You you did this or you always do that. Think about how you, you, you naturally respond with that. And their point is, yeah, you know, actually, sometimes it's easier just to admit that you were wrong and not keep tying yourselves mm-hmm. uh, in knots to yourself in knots to try to uh, to try to to protect your self-image. Just just get the get to the place where instead of uh, defending yourself, instead of uh, expending all that effort to to uh, to defend your self narrative, just say, oh, you know, I was wrong. And all of a sudden you get relief. Yeah, I, 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 I was wondering, though, about because I didn't see a lot of discussion about confession or or a, a repenting of of what had been done in the book and it and it seems like yeah yeah and it but it seems like that would that would be a big part of what they were talking about in in a way to to uh not undo but but to to take a different course than than going down the the these roads but maybe it was just beyond the scope of the of the book but that that is something that stuck out to me in the book is like what where where's the where's the information on coming to terms with these things and and I, I thought they got to it a little bit with with my first quote where they were talking about the guy who would say I tortured and I'm instead of saying I'm a torturer but um yeah there was one one thing that stuck out to me when I when I was reading the book yeah and and I do think you know they th- this is they they don't they certainly don't spend as much time on this as uh, as they do the rest and 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 I think it's it's partly because like you said it is sort of beyond the scope of the book to try to prove uh, that cathartic mm-hmm. um, uh, capacity or the, the the inclination of the soul to catharsis but what they do in you know in this passage is they they say uh, you know again the the rest of the passage is to reduce dissonance most of us put an enormous amount of mental and physical energy into protecting ourselves and propping up our self-esteem when it sags under the realization that we've been mm-hmm. foolish gullible mistaken corrupted or otherwise human and yet much of the time all this investment of energy is surprisingly unnecessary and then they point to examples from prior chapters this person's still doing fine in fact doing better than before uh you know admitted the 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 guilt this person also doing better still successful this person got her parents back this person you know was promoted because of uh, after after admitting wrong so you know you don't have to protect yourself all the time in order to uh to get the benefits and in fact you won't be spending all of that extra energy trying to maintain your self-image. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I think that's how they do it. There's not as much reason to uh, to focus on that aspect of it because what they're trying to do is show the reader these are the the, the places where your shortcuts short circuit, and and they do that throughout, and that that's really the point mm-hmm. of emphasis. You want to do one more of yours, and then I'll I'll hit my next one. Sure. Uh, so another short one. How in the world can they live with themselves? The answer is exactly the way the rest of us do. The reason they can sleep at night is exactly the same reason we can. (laughs) (laughs) And again, this is the sort of thing that how could how could they have done? How could the Nazis have done all of those awful things and justified that Mm -hmm. the same way that we justify 
what we do. Yep. And this is, again, it's a hard lesson for us to recognize, but if we understand the ways that we excuse our own behavior and the ways that we uh, shortcut and, and get to where we can, you know, we can make sure that we preserve our own self-image as good people, that, that actually can help us actually be those good people by, by learning where we're deceiving ourselves in, in some cases and being on the lookout for it. Mm hmm. Uh, my next one is, while inebri inebriation makes it easier for people to reveal their prejudices, it doesn't put those attitudes in their minds. <laughs> that was so good. I, I just, sorry, sorry, uh, Mel Gibson, but I, I was I was thinking of that. Well, they of uh, his tirade. They they mentioned they brought up Gibson in that section. Yeah, but the whenever someone does that, they say, well, I was drunk or, or it, was, it was the beer talking. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't me. It was the alcohol. It makes it easier for them to re reveal their prejudices, but it doesn't put them in their minds. Yeah. I, I remember, uh, you know, a while back, uh, one of the, one of the studies on, on all this, uh, basically saying, listen, it, you don't go to bed with someone because you're drunk. It just lowers your inhibitions a little. Yeah. No, no. Just to be fair, I'm not talking about, you know, blacked out drunk or whatever. I mean, those are rape situations. It's a different thing. But I'm talking about, you know, you get a little bit buzz or whatever, and then you wind up in somebody else's bed. Well, that's not the alcohol. That's just you. You've... Well, and the great philosopher uh, Homer Simpson, <laughs> who said alcohol is the cause and solution to all life's problems. To alcohol, the cause of <laughs> and solution to all of life's problems. <laughs> That was pretty good. Yeah, I don't have my full voice here uh, recording uh, at this moment, but you know, I've been yelling at a bunch of <laughs> yelling at a bunch of high schoolers, trying to get them uh, together for uh, for special teams period and and during practice and all. Yes, everybody, I do uh, also coach some high school football on the side as uh, one of my other side gigs. So uh, yeah, any and. And he does voice work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's always that, too. So, uh, hey, you know, if, you, uh, if you're if you listening to this show and you need any sort of voice work, then feel free to give me a call. I'll make sure that the voice work is done as well as possible. I'd be happy to, uh, to you know, to do anything, no matter how precious it is. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just leave that there. <laughs> but I'm going to go ahead and get to, uh, to my next quote. Uh, this one I uh, I chosen a little bit more for uh, for its humor than uh, than for uh, say the life lesson, but um, so is this the one where the kids should put uh, earmuffs on? Yeah, yeah. This is the the one where uh, if you have you know small children or sensitive ears in the in the room, you might want to skip about thirty seconds forward. Uh, maybe uh, I guess maybe a minute. Anyway, the the quote is. Uh, Technically, of course, McDougal is right. Kreiner could have raped the woman in Texas and ejaculated somewhere else. Arkansas, perhaps. And this, of course, is in the chapter about DNA uh, showing that people who had been previously convicted were, in fact, innocent of the crimes that they'd been convicted of. And this was a case where after the DNA showed that the person convicted of a rape and murder, was it, was, it didn't match this person, the prosecutor said, well... It means that the sperm found in her was not his. It doesn't mean he didn't rape her. doesn't mean he didn't kill her. And their response was, well, technically, of course, he's right. But, you know, come on. This is self-justification to the nth degree. I mean, unbelievable that you would say that. And their point is, well, people use DNA on the front end. Prosecutors use it very much on the front end, very differently than they do in the back end once they're sure they got the right conviction. 
Yeah, once again, a, a really, mm-hmm. really good chapter on uh, on on yeah. miscarriages of justice. And uh, Trump's name comes up in that chapter. Yeah, it's kind of been surprising how often he's come up in these books, you know, all of which are written before his run. Not in a positive light. Yeah. And it's fine. I mean, he keeps coming up. He's he's in some of the uh, the more recent books, too. And yeah. And, and uh, these are not, you know, political opponents. Yeah. yeah never, never in a positive light. Yeah. <laughs> it's just maybe there's something going on. Anyway, but, you know, never mind. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. All right. Well, I'm cheating with my next one here because this is a quote of someone else, but it's quoted in this book. So I thought it's fair game. This comes from Lord Molson. I don't know who that is, but he said, I will look (laughs) at any additional evidence to confirm the opinion to which I already have come. (laughs) Yep. So at least he's being honest. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot more honest than the rest of us tend to be. So, uh, yeah, give him credit for that. And I'll go ahead and uh, do uh, my next one really quickly. This is a fast one. Even irrefutable evidence is rare. Even, even irrefutable evidence is rarely enough to pierce the mental armor of self-justification. Most people, when directly confronted by evidence that they are wrong, do not change their view or course of action, but justify it even more tenaciously. And the data are very clear on this. I mean, there's numerous studies that show that people who have have their minds made up on an issue or find out something that that sets their mind they get disconfirming results and or they get disconfirming evidence and shockingly but not surprisingly once you understand the mechanisms they latch on to their bad information Mm. even more all right my last one that is why history is written by the victors but it's the victims who write the memoirs I, i i thought it was a funny quote because uh, it's like the first line of Braveheart, where they talk about history being written by the the uh, the winners of of battles, and not the not the losers. But they kind of they played off that idea and and said, but the victims get to write the memoirs. And that's especially true uh, now that we have uh, a whole lot more options to get uh, perspectives out there. Uh, that said, mm-hmm. I mean there have been some other examples of uh, actually victims writing history i mean you the hebrew bible is uh those are not the winners that are writing uh the hebrew bible at least on a global perspective but uh uh yeah for the most part uh it's an interesting interesting piece so let's go ahead and move into uh into my last quote here which is uh at its core therefore science is a form of arrogance control I had that in my favorite quotes and I took it out. Yeah, and, and of course they they specify that you know this is that is science properly done, uh, yeah. <laughs> rather than rather than what goes on uh, oftentimes under the name of science, uh, where you have all of these self justifying uh, biases actually underway. Again, uh, looking at a lot of the issues in terms of uh, modern. Uh, the, the modern crisis and and uh, or the present crisis in uh, social science research about repeatability and uh, all sorts of things where people hacked their data whether knowingly in some cases or unknowingly as a result of uh, of being governed by their biases mm-hmm. so uh, but either way you know one of the things that I uh, so what they emphasize here uh, is the rest of the quote uh, leading up to that is The scientific method consists of the use of procedures designed to show not that our predictions and hypotheses are right, but that they might be wrong. 
scientific reasoning is useful to anyone in any job because it makes us face the possibility, even the dire reality, that we were mistaken. It forces us to confront our self-justifications and put them on public display for others to puncture. At its core, therefore, science is a form of arrogance control. And again, they, they, I think the, the, the purpose here is to get people to think about, to think with the scientific method, to think about what disconfirming evidence might be out there that I haven't considered. And I need to be willing to address those potential disconfirmations if I'm going to hold to any view. And, and once again, that's a really, really important lesson. And it's important for those who actually work in science as well. So, so yeah, very, one of my favorite quotes. Uh, that was good. Um, and, and back to the, to the title of the book, mistakes were made. They, they, uh, they do a, a funny part where they, uh, they do some quotes from d- different politicians where mistakes were made is a, is a very common word that comes out of the, out of the white house. And, um, and so that, that's where they got the title of the book, but it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty funny to see how that, uh, how often that gets said, but it's, as you can tell, mistakes were made is, is, uh, not very personal. It's not, it's not, I made a mistake. It's mistakes were made. And then obviously their, their tagline for the book, but not by me. So let's go ahead and move so. into uh, a little bit uh, in, into the more uh, into the closer analysis portion of the podcast, looking at uh, looking a little bit more closely at some of the key themes of the book, rather than uh, just uh, some some of those quotes. And I know Eric, you had wanted to, uh, based on the show notes, you had wanted to uh, to start on uh, talking about the importance of small decisions. So let's go ahead and start there. Yeah, and and I hit on this a little bit at the, at the beginning, but. Um... It, it, it just made me think so much of how important character is, how important making the right decision is at the very beginning, because, uh, this book kind of keeps presenting situations where people don't even know that they're getting sucked into something, uh, in, in, until, until it's too late or in, until they're, they're really, really deep into it. Um, but if if they had been able to say no at the beginning, if they if they had had the character or the or the courage to say no, uh, right when things were getting wrong or where that where they where they knew something wasn't right, um, it, it would have saved a lot of a lot of uh, time. So, or, or a lot of heartache. And so, yeah, just we've come across this a lot in, in the other books of Titans books, and and um, so I, I thought it was neat to see it in, in this context. And uh, in in really putting a lot of importance on the on the small decisions and not not uh, thinking that everything important in life is going to be some some huge deal or huge decision, but um, the the small decisions you make by yourself, you know, that that no one else sees, and the 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 decisions you make on a, on a daily basis. So I, I thought it was was uh, was interesting seeing it here again. Yeah, it really is the uh, the the little decisions, the small decisions that actually set everything else. And and I, I, again, I, I I think one of the things that this book reinforces, like you were just saying, is this idea that you have to set the standard of uh, integrity 
really early and you have to have you have to make sure that you rigorously protect that standard otherwise it's so easy to slip into uh into these these just one little decision suddenly changes everything i mean you you look at you know for example if you if, if any of the listeners out there have watched say house of cards on netflix you know you 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 have a politician that makes one little compromise, the person, you know, they got into politics because they wanted to bring real change and it's a good person. And then you make one little compromise that everybody does, or, you know, there's one personal weakness in some area. And because somebody else finds out about that, suddenly they hold your strings and now you have to dance when they say dance. Now, all of a sudden you're well on your way to becoming a corrupt politician because you made one tiny compromise that was not a big deal there, but now that you're, you know, in a more significant uh, position, you don't want that to get out, or something, something else happens, or you just have built the the habits to get to there, and all of a sudden, you're a corrupt politician. Or, you know, in this book, the the the, the chapter again, we've talked about it already. The chapter on law enforcement is just frightening, and especially given, you know, the the. Um, the, the 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 patterns today the the big um you know revelations today that are they're showing on you know through the body cameras and all sorts of uh, various ways that this stuff's getting caught people have set, have have been saying for years that uh that these abuses by law enforcement officers have been happening but lots of people haven't been willing to believe that because of course you know law enforcement you know they're 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 the good guys and law enforcement believes that they're the good guys and generally speaking they're they're trying to be but then you look at how you know various people of color are getting shot and not just people of color but but uh that's been a uh been something that that has the the disproportionality of treatment of people of different from different backgrounds and and different appearances and so on that stuff shows up and you go how do you get there and they've got that whole section on how does a cop become a corrupt cop these you, you don't go into law enforcement thinking, yeah, I'm going to be a corrupt cop, <laughs> right? So so how do you how do you guard against this then? Uh, especially if if we're so prone to self justification, it kind of seems like you, the best course of action is not to rely on yourself in these types of things. So if if you've got <clears throat> if you know that you're coming up a, on a on a decision, is, is the best way to to protect yourself to try to have a, a, a partner in crime type thing of, of <laughs> well, not in crime. <laughs> yeah, not in crime, but uh, someone to, someone to bounce ideas off or, or to, uh, to, to be accountable to, to what you're, what you're doing or, or, cause it seems like if you just rely on yourself to, to make that right first decision, you, you it's not a good thing to, to rely on. So well, I don't, um, I'm not sure that's true because, so there are a couple things here. One is the, the book, I think makes the point that once you've made that first compromise, you're going to be seriously compromised in your ability to trust any, you know, to, to trust any decisions you make after that, because you're going to continue to self-justify and all that. But mm-hmm. the first decision is precisely where you can have that, that volition. Yeah. It's decided. Say, say for the person that is, is past that point. Yeah. Is the that, best thing to, to, to then tell somebody or. Yeah, that that's that's a hard thing because as as they talk about in the book, admit even admitting to yourself 
that I've got, I've made compromises that I don't like, that I've done things that I don't like and that, that I don't identify as me. That's just shattering to the narrative that we tell ourselves. And it's hard to admit to ourselves. Yeah. So the first step, it can't, it's not about someone else. It has to be the willingness to actually evaluate oneself honestly. And that starts by, first of all, recognizing that we, that we don't always tell ourselves the truth. And, and once you fine, recognize, fine. yeah. And as Feynman said, uh, don't fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you can see why Atia likes both of these books and, and he's yeah. batting a thousand in my book, in, in my book, in terms of his recommendations. I mean, I, I think this one's a little better than the other one, yeah. uh, it, but both of them are, are, are really helpful reads in terms of how to think and to make sure that you don't delude yourself and that you don't just follow the crowd and, and, and compromise and all this. But I think, again, the first thing is when you, so when you have the opportunity to make those first little decisions, you protect every opportunity to be a person of the rigorous integrity that you imagine yourself to be. So you don't administer that, you know, first shock or second shock or whatever. Once you, you know, you set your boundary and I'm not going to cross my boundary. What, what's really easy is, and you know, this is why, uh, uh the, there's that phenomenon of, uh, the, the, the auction, the, 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 the person who wins the auction actually loses, uh, which as I recall was mentioned in the book as well. Um, but this idea that, you know, if you're uh, no, actually, this wasn't mentioned in the, this wasn't mentioned in the book. It was something else I was reading around the same time. But this idea that, you know, if you're on eBay or whatever, the, it, it's the uh, the paradox of the the winner loses because the person who wins an auction odds are paid more than the than the item is worth because of the competitiveness and of, of auctions and the nature of how once you've actually started getting invested in something you're less willing to give it up. So you may go into the auction saying, well, this is worth $25. And then you get to $25 and you're like, dang it. I thought I was going to get it for $25, but now somebody just bid $25.50. You know what? I'll just bid. It's only, it's only two bucks more. I'm going to bid 27. Well, you just overpaid by $2. And it's that tendency to let, to, to let boundaries creep that we have once we're invested that this book is trying to get at in terms of things like integrity, right? Cause we tell ourselves stories and then we let our boundaries move and we don't even realize that the boundary has moved because we, we get involved in the process. So what, what, what the, the first thing is, is set where your boundary is going to be and don't let that move. Even if it's inconvenient, even if it causes personal difficulty. So, you know, again, in the Leo chapter, when they're talking about law enforcement officers, you know, it, the first time you see your partner plant evidence, that's the, that's the moment that you have to make the decision. Yeah. Because that moment when you're the rookie cop and your partner, you see your partner just happened to drop the bag of drugs there because, well, we know that this perp is guilty, but he just happened to be able to get rid of the drugs right before we got here. We got to make sure we bust him. We're doing the right thing here. And you say, no, I'm not going to tolerate that. Yeah. You know what? You may become a pariah. But if the moment you tolerate that, then the next time you're going to tolerate it. And then the next time, and before long, 10 years later, you're, you're a corrupt cop, completely corrupt. Yeah. And it's because you made that one decision. So the first thing is don't make that decision. The second thing is once you make the decision, you've got to then, you've got to make the much harder decision of admitting to yourself, I was unethical. 
I didn't live up to the standards that I should have. And then trying to deal with that and find some accountability and find a way to, to start to make amends. That's really hard. And they get to that mm-hmm. late in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So yeah, I, I, another, another chapter that we should really talk about that was really, I, I thought was outstanding was the marriage chapter and, and, and we need to spend a little bit of time there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that one immensely. Uh, it, and it was very helpful. And, and even, I mean, they, as with all the chapters, there's, there's a lot of, uh, uh, of examples and I mean, you can, you can see yourself in the examples. You can see, um, uh, just, you know, even things that, uh, that you deal with in your own marriage. And, uh, so it was very helpful to, to see that. And then how, how these people in the example, how they, how they overcame these things. Um, one, one th- one thing I, I enjoyed and, and I see it in your notes as well is this uh, ratio of the five to one. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and this is this is something that's come up uh, again. We we've talked about how this this book is uh, is on the bleeding edge of social science research and and all of this, and uh, and this is one example. And and some of this stuff has actually come up uh, fairly recently on the uh, Tim Ferriss podcast as well. Uh, where they're talking about uh, uh, where, where there's been some discussion of romantic relationships and so on. And uh, they, they, they pull on the, on the research of a guy named John Gottman, uh, who did, a, this, is, this is awesome stuff, uh, where they, they're talking about how, about basically what causes relationships to, uh, to to end what what caught what what poisons uh, romantic relationships marriage relationships and so on and one of the things that uh that that gottman concludes is that the the ultimate sign that a relationship is really at its end or is is in really bad trouble is contempt once you get to the place of contempt it's really really bad and what they do is they connect Gottman's research with this concept of self-justification. And, th- and so what they say is, from our standpoint, misunderstandings, conflicts, personality differences, even angry quarrels are not the assassins of love. Self-justification is. And they, they, they spend a good bit of the chapter talking about that. And th- then they, they, they bring it back to, to Gottman and they say, anger reflects the hope that a problem can be corrected. When it burns out, it leaves the ashes of resentment and contempt and contempt is the handmaiden of hopelessness. So then what they do is they, they talk about how this all works in terms of, um, of, of healthy couples versus unhealthy couples. And this is where the ratio comes in. And they say the tipping point at which a couple starts rewriting their love stories Gottman finds again this is John Gottman is when the quote-unquote magic ratio dips below five to one successful couples have a ratio of five times as many positive interactions such as expressions of love affection and humor to negative ones such as expressions of annoyance or complaints and basically they say listen when that positive negative ratio starts to shift in favor of negative feelings Couples start to resolve the dissonance that's caused by the same events in ways that increases their alienation from one another, whereas when the ratio is higher, it decreases, the, 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 it's, it spirals in the other direction. And this is why a relationship is always either growing or it's growing apart. And 
the, the way that they ex- explained this in line with the concept of cognitive dissonance and in terms of uh, how we tend to self-justify our, uh, and how we tend to give ourselves breaks that we don't necessarily give others, I thought was was really, really well done in this chapter. Yeah, and it makes me think of uh, the comments you had on Once an Eagle and um, Damon's marriage in, in that book and how it is it is these small things here as well. And it, and you always hear of the, the three main reasons that couples break up for family, money, and, and uh, affairs. But it's that stuff starts here. It starts in the paragraph you just read. It's it's the it's the small things. It's not yeah, the 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 big bang at the end may be what what's the final straw, but um I thought this was brilliant in in getting to that and in the things you mentioned in Once an Eagle was you could see that relationship kind of falling apart over time based on 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 negative things that had happened and how they had, had let those things Get, uh, allow them to be angry at each other um, and then just the, in, in that case they weren't spending time with each other either but um, but I thought that was a, a a neat connection point and 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 back to that my first comment of, of the small small decisions and the small everyday everyday things in in a marriage and then in in life in general yeah and 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 again this connects to you know a lot of people say well you know the the things that cause marriages to go go bad you know again uh what was it money kids and uh money family money and, family and uh, uh, extended family and and um and affairs and affairs that's right what's interesting is Gottman actually says that's not really the case that he says that the four markers of relationship failure are in fact criticism defensiveness contempt and stonewalling and and contempt is the worst well, and that uh, the, so it's it, you're probably even more those from, other things don't necessarily affect it. It's it's how how you respond to them with criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling that really lead to those things. And you may uh, be more familiar with this, but there there's recent studies too where where uh, psychologists could could say they could determine the success of a marriage within like a minute just based on how couples would communicate with each other. That was actually Gottman's and, work. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that was okay. part of that was part of Gottman's work. Okay. Uh, uh, as I recall, and I know that they did a bunch of in-depth interviews of couples and they basically said after the interviews, here's the ones that are going to work and not. And they had those predicted and they were 93% accurate. Jeez. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's pretty high. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, and, and they actually referenced this study in, in the chapter where they say, you know, the researchers were able to predict with 100% accuracy, the cu- the seven couples who divorced. Wow. And the 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 place where the where the ninety three percent comes in is that they'd said that three more couples would likely not not be together at that point by the time of the second interview. So yeah, that's pretty high pretty high uh, results. So this chapter, if nothing else, is worth it for anybody who you know wants to think about better ways to to communicate in their marriage and and to think about their spouse and so on. So uh, this is a this is I think a very important chapter uh, that. You know, I've got all sorts of highlights throughout this chapter that are uh, are are working throughout. And and again, I think one of the pieces here is they they talk about throughout the book about how cognitive dissonance works in such a way that we constantly give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And then what they point out is that successful couples <clears throat> actually work in such a way that they extend to them to each other 
So th- here's the paragraph there. Successful partners extend to each other the same self-forgiving ways of thinking we extend to ourselves. Those couples forgive each other's missteps as being due to this situation, but give each other credit for the loving and thoughtful things they do. And then yeah, they, no. go, they go well, on to I say, they can go the other way. while happy partners Sorry, are giving each other the benefit of the doubt, unhappy partners are doing just the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, well, I think it can work the other way, too, where you, uh, you'll, you'll forgive others for things that you, you won't forgive yourself for, Yeah. too. Yeah. So it, it can work both ways, but, but yeah, um, great, great chapter. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's a, an awesome chapter. And, and, and one of the interesting things too, that, that came up in that chapter and that, that, uh, uh, brought up that connects to some of the other pieces in this book about how we rewrite our own memories, right? That we don't remember the past as accurately as we think we do, particularly when it's not, we're not talking about like flashbulb stuff, you know, you know, you remember the birth of your first child or whatever. Yeah. You know, your, your memory of that's probably pretty accurate, but in general, we, we are constantly telling ourselves stories and those stories impact our memories to the point where we sometimes will mix up what actually happened with what we, with, with, with some story. And, and, uh, you know, we, I could refer to the one chapter as the Tony Anthony chapter say. Um, but, Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's this this quote that sa- that where Gottman says I can I have found that nothing foretells a marriage's future as accurately as how a couple retells their past. Rewriting history begins even before a couple is aware their marriage is in danger. And so basically this question of like oh so how did you meet and you know why did you marry and and you know what's happened in the last 15 years how couples frame that and how they tell those stories tells a tremendous amount about where that where where that uh where that marriage is headed because it's our present mindset that's reshaping the way that we remember so you know people remember if if things aren't going well if if somebody is not not uh not happy or somebody is uh is is starting to pull away from their partner they're recasting the past as all negative that to me is, is, is a fascinating way that, that our minds work so that, you know, by the end it's like, well, you know, this was never that great, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but 20 years ago, you might've said it was great. Yeah. Well, shall we move on? Yeah. Let's go ahead and move on to the next, uh, next subject here. Okay. I've got one real quick one. They, uh, they mentioned that in baseball, there's three main stats for every every game runs hits and errors and i thought it, i thought it was cool the way that, the way that we presented it was that it's it's okay to to take track of errors and it's probably a beneficial thing instead of just trying to focus on the good things part of part of uh of maybe moving beyond self-justification and everything is is to realize that you will err there are errors in every game and they're a big part of the outcome of any given game. And so start keeping track of those. And, and, and I guess just the beware that you can be fooled. You, you will be fooled and, uh, and, and, and get beyond that point. And, and it's, it's okay to, to account for the errors. Well, instead of learning, and, and I think this is one of the things that they get to as well in a couple other places, is instead of regarding errors 
as signs that you're stupid or bad. You re- the, the, the key thing is to regard errors as keys toward becoming, or toward learning. And that's one of the most important lessons that we can all, we can all get to, right? You don't mm-hmm. want to, you don't want to try to avoid errors all the time because, and, and you don't want to get to the place where you especially don't want to get to the place where you don't recognize that you've made errors when you have, because your mind has concluded that, well, I'm a good guy. I wouldn't make mistakes. I wouldn't make that kind of mistake. So clearly it wasn't a mistake. And that's what we do. So they say, listen, you have to start to accept the fact that errors are a natural thing that constantly happens because we are not, uh, you know, we're not gods walking around uh, with the capacity to see every possible effect of every decision that we make. And we may make mistakes, but then just admit the mistake and move on and learn from it instead of doubling down on it. Because doubling down on it is where the real mistakes start to happen. Yeah. Well, what, what else were uh, items that stuck out to you in this one? Um, one of the other things that I thought was interesting was it was uh, the chapter that addressed like the the memoir of the Holocaust by the guy who had never been who was actually not a Holocaust victim, yeah, who wasn't even Jewish, yeah, but he'd basically convinced himself over a number of years his whole identity had transformed to where he had convinced himself he was a Nazi, uh, a survivor of Nazi. Uh, 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 oppression as a young Jewish kid and had been through the concentration camp and wrote all of this stuff out and, you know, wrote a really moving story. And in fact, he wasn't actually there in any of it. He had no, it it, it hadn't, it had no relevance to him, but he, he has gotten to the place where he doesn't believe the disconfirming evidence that it couldn't have happened for him. Because it's actually become so wrapped up in him, and, and you know, you've seen this, I know, uh, previously, and it's it's again a situation where is this person lying? Well, yeah, but they're lying to themselves before they're lying to anybody else, and it just happens that that narrative that they've come to embrace about themselves, that he's come to embrace about himself, has become that person's identity. It's shaped yeah. that person. It's given that person meaning. The character here that they're talking about is this uh, Vilka Mirsky, uh, who in fact was uh, Bruno Grossin, was the actual name that, and eventually that uh, that he had come to identify as Benjamin Vilka Mirsky. And this is all about fragments, uh, a memoir uh, that was allegedly of of his childhood experiences and all this. And there are all sorts of examples that are like this. And what's fr- what's fascinating is that um, that when they when when questions were initially brought up about uh, you know the details on this are questionable, that when they when they actually uh, questioned the people the 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 uh, psychotherapists and others who had worked with this person, <laughs> one of them when the when the publisher asked responded no listen this is a gifted honest man who had an extraordinarily uh, precisely functioning memory and then uh the 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 therapist had written that she hoped 
uh, any, quote, absurd doubts can be dispelled, end quote, because the publication of the book was very important for Vilkomirsky's mental health. It was her wish, she wrote, that fate not overtake him in such a perfidious way, quote, demonstrating to him yet again that he is a nobody, end quote. And see, that's it right there. The, the, the reason that this guy ended up inventing this whole story and buying it himself is it was a way for him to convince himself that he was somebody. It was a way of building himself up and making and, and, and finding a way of identifying, yeah, this is who I am in this world. And we all do it. We all tell ourselves stories. We all tell ourselves narratives to do that. And I know I've mentioned this previously on this podcast before, but Christian Smith's book, uh, on, on all this is exactly, uh, which we'll put in the show notes again, is exactly about this, about how we tell ourselves stories to, to find, you know, to, to teach ourselves who we are and to situate ourselves in the world. I mean, this is the whole concept also of, of virtue ethics with Alistair McIntyre and all that. And we all do it, maybe not this extremely, but we're all susceptible to this kind of source confusion, which they talk about. That's a, that's that concept where suddenly we, uh, and children are especially vulnerable to this. And, you know, again, there's a chapter in there that we should probably talk some about as well, that basically as people tell you how an event might've happened, it starts to feel real. And then eventually maybe you don't, you can't distinguish between the story world that you were inhabiting, maybe through reading a, a novel or memoirs of someone else, or maybe a dream or whatever. You can't distinguish between that and real memories. And suddenly it becomes a part of who you are. And then it's truth to you, but it's, un it's not actually what happened. Uh, that, that to me is a, it, we all do it, but the, the bigger examples that they, that they brought up were really, I think, good ones to show how it can work on the extreme. And it's, it's interesting for people who are doing that right now, as we enter an age of a lot more being searchable and discoverable on online to where a story can be concocted, but it can also be more readily, I guess, verified or not verified. Uh, and there's still a lot of gray areas in that, but, um, but somebody can tell a story and it can be, uh, where, whereas in the past, you know, maybe they just moved from a different city and started telling a story to a, a new group of people. Now that past follows and, it, it makes for some interest in, in, in at least the, 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 the example I'm, I'm thinking of it, it made for, for an interesting, um, interesting example. So, <laughs> yeah, it's easier to check and verify certain things now than it used to be. Mm -hmm. So stuff that would have been understood as taken as, as uh, taken on faith on the, on the basis that this person is passionate and very clearly, you know, this is an emotional memory for this person. Now somebody can verify and check and go, wait, no, no, no. That actually happened in a movie that you might've watched as a kid. Yeah. But for that person, it's become that, that person's reality. No, they were actually partaking. They were t participating in that movie. They were participating in those events. Well, you can see how that happens as a kid. You act that out. You, you know, you get to that place and then, you know, over, you know, after a while, your fantasy becomes reality. Yeah. Well, I've got one item I wanted to ask you about because this, to me, it was, uh, it was a revelation, I guess, or something that I had not heard before. And that is the, 
notion of rep- repression. So I'm going to read a, <laughs> a sentence here in, in the book. And you never watched the X-Files, huh? No, no. And, and I had not heard this before, so I wanted to, to get your thoughts on it. The notion that the mind protects itself by rep- repressing or dis- disassociating memories of trauma, rendering them inaccessible to awareness, is a piece of psychiatric folklore devoid of convincing empirical support. That was the first I'd come across this. And, and so it, from what you've read, is this uh, have they kind of gotten rid of the idea of repression? Yeah, as far as memory, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what they're talking about is repressed memory. So mm-hmm. th- there's there's a couple things. One is repression itself, or verdrängen, uh, as uh, uh, or verdrängen, as uh, as it would be said in in German, uh, you know, which Freud wrote in, is a Freudian concept where basically what he's saying is uh, everyone's psyche. I mean, everybody can kind of uh, Freudianism is, has, has in, uh, infected and infiltrated, uh, the popular conscience enough that most people, most listeners surely know this. Uh, but Freudianism basically assumes that the, that a person's consciousness is kind of like an iceberg where only the, 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 uh, the conscious part of it, the, the part that you sell, that you are aware of, that's the part above the surface, but the vast majority of a person's psyche is actually below the surface and inaccessible to the conscious mind, such that uh, what what Freud basically says is repression is in that sort of subliminals, you know, it's the, the, the part below the surface, uh, it's a subliminal defense mechanism, so that whatever your conscious mind deems to be unacceptable which would arouse anxiety if it's recalled, the, 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 the unconscious mind blocks that from the conscious mind. So, you know, this is the idea that, you know, the, those, uh, those preachers who are, 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 you know, preaching so hard against homosexuality, well, in reality, they probably have repressed homosexual urges that would be unacceptable to them in their conscious mind, but in fact, they have those urges that they've just kind of pushed down. Right. So that's one way of thinking about about repression is that, you know, this is something that you in the conscious ego have come to regard as something that would be unacceptable to your consciousness, to that ego, to who you say to to your story of who you are. So you push it down and you bury it and, you know, you 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 don't deal with it. Now, that led to the idea that you have memories that get repressed. And. Basically, now uh, the 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 conclusion has been, yeah, you may have urges and so on that you don't admit to yourself that you have. So in that case, repression, you know, in a more limited sense, is is something that does exist. But uh, the idea of actual repressed memories that you have, you know, some trauma in the past that you've that you that that because it's so difficult for for your mind to wrap itself around that you've just that you block out that it exists that 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 actually happened that is pretty much now dismissed among uh among mainstream uh uh psychological research and and uh and so uh mainstream psychology at this point will say listen memories particularly traumatic memories don't generally get repressed. It's extremely rare if it ever happens. You're much more likely to be traumatically to traumatically remember things than you are to not remember the traumatic events. 
You know, yeah. those are the things that, that, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night in night terrors because it happened. You don't forget yeah. it. Right. Yeah. And of course, this is in the chapter that deals with the epidemic of all of these uh, children being put under, you know, be, being uh, psych, uh, psychoanalyzed and then determining that they'd been raped or uh, molested. Uh, women who had, you know, some some form of an eating disorder or whatever, going to a psychoanalyst and then concluding under uh, regression uh, therapy that they had been raped by their father for, you know, 11 years and all this. And there are some, you know, horrifying examples of this where, you know, people were, people were locked up for, you know, 30 years. There was a couple in Texas that was running a daycare where the, the, the kids eventually accused them, they, 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 they ended up being accused of uh, running a satanic, uh, satanic rituals and all this and, and abusing and molesting these children. And none of it was true. But that's that's what happened. They got locked away for, you know, decades because in the 80s and 90s, these sorts of things were 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 mainstream. Hmm. And uh, and that chapter is all about that particular um, that particular scare and how those repressed those notions of repressed memory and all this worked together with this self-justifying pattern among the actual analysts, not just among the, 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 the so-called victims who are victimized by their analysts. Yeah. And that even these highly trained professionals are highly susceptible to this particular tendency. And, and again, this could probably just as well be applied in, you know, in another 10 or 15 years, we'll probably be looking back at some of the, uh, concerns about campus climate in, in, in this period and say, yeah, there was a lot of self-justification going on there. You know, nobody wanted to disbelieve anything or nobody wanted to appear not to be an advocate for this or that. And, you know, then it led to these abuses and, and so on. That's the book that's going to be written in another 10 or 15 years looking at that. Of course, generally speaking, a pretty significantly different situation from, you know, children accusing daycare workers of these sorts of things and those people being put away for his, for so long. A little bit different kind of context. And, you know, there is a, a, a serious problem in terms of uh, sexual assault, in, in, you know, not just in this country, but has been for forever, uh, unfortunately. But the way that we go about this and the way that we often rush to prosecute and rush to to advocate those factors the the way that we do it tends to be driven by this process of confirmation bias, cognitive dissonance, self-justification and so on. Yeah. Well, any anything else from the uh for nitty-gritty? Well, I mean, I think it's probably worth mentioning uh, that uh, I thought they did a pretty good job talking about the Crusades and the history and how that kind of goes both ways uh, in the sense that, well, you can make the case and, you know, some very good historians have made the case that it was a defensive uh, conflict on the side of the of the of Christianized Europe. But then on the other hand, how far back do you go? Right. Depending on yeah. where you start any different conflict, you can blame either side. And at which point they say, is it really about assessing blame? Or maybe we should just, you know, realize that, again, these factors of cognitive dissonance and narratives and uh, and self-justification ultimately lead to this kind of violence. I thought they mm -hmm. did a good job with that. Other than that, uh, I should 
probably also mention uh, that mistakes were made in the uh, recording process of this uh, particular episode. Um, in this case, by me. Uh, <laughs> Which is the first the first step to, uh, yeah. to non-self-justification, right? Yeah, yeah. We managed to record about the first 45 minutes of this, and uh, unfortunately, it was only recording one half of us. It was recording Eric's side, so then I had to go in and uh, add the uh, voiceovers uh, to try to approximate what I had actually said in the gaps between what Eric was <laughs> was saying for that first 40, 40 or so minutes of the uh, podcast before transitioning back to uh, to dialogue. Apparently, uh, the application that I used to, uh, to record these episodes, uh, there was a, a change that I was unaware of in terms of uh, a legacy setting that I was using for, uh, for some filtering of my uh, vocal track that... Um, no longer works with the input set with the input that I uh, I use, so uh, that just transitioned so that it wasn't wasn't working, and I I didn't pay attention when I started recording. So how about that? Mistakes were made by me in this case, and uh, yeah, sorry to the listeners if uh, there was any uh, sort of choppiness in that first part. If not, then just remember I am of course a vocal professional, and if you need voiceover work done that is uh, persuasive and convincing voice acting, as though I was actually a part of the conversation. Then feel free to give me a give me a get, get contact me through social media and uh, hire me for your next project. <laughs> I like it. All I right, like let's it. go ahead and get to conclusions. Big well, picture. to conclude, I want to read a part here and then make a comment after that. I thought this was one of the better better uh, comments in the book. People can remain passionately committed to their nation, religion political party, spouse, and family, yet understand that it is not, not disloyal to disagree with actions or policies they find inappropriate, misguided, or immoral. And when the dissonance is caused by something we ourselves did, we keep Perez's third way in mind, articulate the cognitions and keep them separate. In quotes here, when I, a decent, smart person, make a mistake, I remain a decent, smart person, and the mistake remains a mistake. Now, how do I remedy what I did? That first part I wrote, especially about uh, being committed to a, a cause without in, in understanding that it's not just loyal to disagree with the actions or policies they find inappropriate, misguided, or immoral. I know very few people who can do that. And Jason, I, I mean, I, I would say that you're you're one of the few I know that can can be passionately committed to something and and be able to disagree but not feel like you're disloyal i, I mean i i have a hard time with that and, and every i think a does. lot of what we see on on social media is is people having a hard time with that um if you if you're committed to a political party then everything they do you you feel that you have to uh you have to agree with it and you have to promote it um and that's where a lot of the these uh, mistakes can be made so yeah that was, that was one of my main conclusions is just uh it's it's it, it was good to read this it was it was interesting to read this uh but very it, very few people i think have been able to do what what uh what they suggest in in this book and and again i think it's a large in large part because a lot of people are so unfamiliar with the ways that our minds play tricks on us mm. and with the way that we do get wrapped up in our our own tribe and our in defending ourselves rather than working from 
a sort of dispassionate, listen, I'm not committed to me being right. I'm committed to truth. And that's Mm -hmm. a really hard position to maintain. Most of us can't, can't live there. And really none of us live there all the time. Uh, and you have to be aware of, of the potential biases in place and be willing to be wrong for that to be the case. You have to actually have a, uh, a mental commitment. You have to tell yourself a story in which it's okay that that you actually might be wrong. Mm -hmm. And most of us, that's, that's really hard for us to do. Uh, and fortunately I had a really good example of this growing up. My dad is a really good example of this. I, you know, some of the most formative lessons I got from my dad were, listen, don't act like, you know, something, if you, if you don't, you'll just make a fool of yourself eventually. Just ask whatever you need to ask. Go figure out whatever you need to figure out and actually get to know it. Right. Well, and the other examples you give of uh, you, even even very young, uh, asking him why. Oh, yeah. One thing or another was done. And it, and if he couldn't come back with a, a good reason, he would he would concede the point, you know, <laughs> yeah. instead of trying to, to fight it. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember in a few cases where, you know, he told me something, you know, we and I was I was a young kid. And I would, and I came back at him with, well, with you did, X, and he came back and said, yep, you know what? You're right. I was, I'm, I'm wrong. I, I was wrong. I'm, I'm sorry. I, that's, and that example getting set by my dad when I was, when I was young was hugely formative because what he always modeled was, it's not about me being right. It's about what's true. And if you can show me disconfirming evidence then I'm going to immediately drop whatever I'm what, whatever position I'm holding, and I'm going to come over to your side. And, and by watching him do it, and that be the commitment that he lived to, that actually really was formative for me. To and and that's one of the reasons why I think I've been a, a pretty good researcher in my own field. Has been, you know, I, okay. So what? So what if I find out that the position that I previously held is wrong? Well, why should I stick to it? Now I now I've now I've seen that there's other disconfirming evidence. Well, let's just find a better way to let's just find a better model. I'm not yeah. married to that. So, uh, you know, that's where, again, I think it's really important for parents to model to kids. One of the most important things we can model to our kids is how to properly respond when we're wrong. Because it's going to happen. What do I do when I make a mistake? Do I teach my kid that I double down on that? Because that's what my kid's going to do. Or do I say oh, I'm so sorry. That's my fault. I, I was wrong. The, I think that that is one of the most important phrases a kid can hear a parent say is I was wrong. I still remember certain examples of my dad doing that. And that was some of the, those were some of the most formative moments for me in my life is him being willing to do that and him modeling. And he was an official, by the way, he was a, a, a referee, uh, and an umpire and, you know, in different sports. And, uh, I, I still remember that, you know, at different points he would be in a, in a game. And, uh, I remember, uh, there was, there was a, a, a coach, uh, I was not actually at this game, but, uh, but this happened on multiple occasions. So I'm, I'll tell you the one story where, uh, you know, I remember after the fact, uh, but, uh, coach just starts climbing all over him saying, you know, that that's a terrible call. How? It? And after he, you know, coaches climbing on him and whatever, you know, getting all over him for, for missing the call. He just looked at the coach, you know, over on the sideline and said, coach, I missed it. Huh. You're right. I missed the call. Sorry. Well, <laughs> and, and he said the coach just looked at him like, 
oh and just stopped and he's like funny. what what can i do about it i missed it sorry yeah i'm, I'm well, doing my and best then, here. and then the way of communicating it i think <laughs> goes back to the the title of this book you could either say mistakes were made and and almost put it off on like some imaginary third person or you could do as is the example you just gave i i missed it or i i made a mistake i yeah. not not mistakes were made and i think it's a that's it's a slight difference but it's it's a, a huge difference uh, it's a massive difference and it and it totally changes it, once we get into the habit of doing it once you learn to say that it it's it's so liberating yeah and and again watching my dad do that and 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 him chuckling after that game going it's amazing what it, what different what a difference it makes once you don't double down on your bad calls yeah <laughs> And, he, you know, he had so much respect from various coaches. I mean, people wanted him to do their games as an official because he was a guy that was honest. I missed it, coach. <laughs> I, I, would, I would love to see that just to like to have a camera on that coach because, you know, that coach wants to keep like he probably didn't even hear your dad immediately say that. Like, I missed it. <laughs> he, he already was thinking of the next reaming thing he was going to give him. And then to be I missed it. Wait. And what? those are the people we want to be doing our games. Because yeah. the guy that can actually admit, yeah, I missed that call. That's the guy that, you know what? That's the guy that I want to be officiating. So yeah. the last thing here uh, for me, the, in terms of big, big picture stuff, uh, is this, this section uh, toward the end where it, it's talking about monsters. You know, the people who've committed atrocities. And it says this is one of the most thoroughly documented findings in social psychology, but it's also one of it's also the most difficult for many people to accept because of the enormous dis dissonance it produces. What can I possibly have in common with perpetrators of murder and torture? It's more reassuring to believe that they are evil and be done with them. We dare not let a glimmer of their humanity in the door because it might force us to face the haunting truth of Pogo's great line. We have met the enemy and he is us. And basically what they, what they get at is, you know, they, they interviewed, they, they mentioned uh, Ricardo Arizio who interviewed seven dictators, including Idi Amin, uh, Jean-Claude uh, Duvalier, um, Mira Markovich, that's uh, Slobodan Milosevic's wife and others. And every one of them claimed that everything they did, torturing or murdering their opponents, blocking free elections, starving their citizens, looting their nation's wealth, launching genocidal wars was done for the good of their country. And if you, if, if you know anything about Hitler, Hitler was no monster in his own mind. Hitler, and, and he was not insane. This is one of those things. I mean, I, I've, I've taught multiple courses on Jewish, Jewish Christian relations uh, through the ages. I've taught multiple courses that have spent a lot of time on the Holocaust. And one of the things that my students invariably come back with after they've read documents on this stuff and they've looked into what's going on, they come back, and, and it's always one of the most gratifying moments of those semesters. My students come back and go, you know, I, this is really, really disturbing to me because I used to think that if you could just go back in history and kill Hitler, that, you know, like the Holocaust wouldn't have happened. But now I realize, like, it would have happened without him. Somebody else would have done it. And not only that, it could totally happen here. Like, we could do the same thing. Yeah. That right there... That realization, if you can get that out of anything, again, it's a, it's, it's a horrible realization that the monster that was Adolf Hitler was really just a very 
he actually took certain philosophical print, uh, positions of his day and he was he was remarkably consistent and he believed he was doing the right thing and that's, that's a lot scarier than frightening. being able to say he was insane yeah that's frightening yeah because all of us can all of us could turn into that given the wrong first decision and then yeah. getting pushed to the wrong second decision and eventually you're at the bottom of that and you are an, a dictator or you're a torturer in Abu Ghraib or you're it's easy. It would be easy for any one of us to become that. And that's what this book really gets at. That's where I think this book is, is pretty darn valuable. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it as much as you did. Uh, and, and the other thing going on with me is that I just finished one of our other books, the power of persuasion, which it was funny at the end of the power of persuasion. I, I put a note said, I, I, the, a lot of these, I've heard a lot of these examples before and I was trying to remember where I heard them. And I, I think they were mostly from mistakes were made. Um, and so my question, cause uh, power persuasion was, was written earlier than mistakes were made. So my question was, is, is this such common knowledge now that, uh, that I knew of all these examples or, or had I read them elsewhere? And, and so it's, it's coming back to me now that, that uh, mistakes were made was was the source of a lot of those uh so it'll be interesting to talk to about about that one too because power persuasion goes a lot more into the sales side of things and how we can be suckered in by by marketers salesmen and, and that sort of thing but they also talk a lot about the examples uh from this book as well especially the the shock the shock uh, uh thing that they did and um he, he goes into that a lot more so uh, i i got the two books confused a lot now when i was uh thinking about them and in but going through the notes and then having the discussion with you about this, it it, it did bring a lot of uh, of the good parts of this book, and and I I have a lot more respect for the book now. I think part of part of me too, while I was reading it, was is this true? Because a lot of it was uh, was different than what I had heard or, or read in the past. Um, so I, I was encouraged to to hear from you also that that a lot of this is cutting edge and and good stuff. So yeah, I, I've. Uh, I mean, that marriage chapter, if, if, even if you don't read anything else, I, I would get the book and, and go to uh, the marriage chapter and and just even reading that one, it's uh, it's chapter six is is worth it. I mean, the, the whole book is worth it. But that marriage chapter especially was it, it set it apart for me. Yeah, that, that marriage chapter and the chapter on memory, which is which goes hand in glove with that. I would say if you're going to read anything, read those chapters and uh, they're mm -hmm. they're terrific. Uh, all right. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Now, before we get out of here, just a reminder that you can follow along with us at booksoftitans.com. You can also contact us, interact with us on Twitter or Instagram at Books of Titans. And let me uh, let me make one uh, one comment about booksoftitans.com. If if you uh, if you're enjoying what we're doing and, and want to think of, or, or trying to think of a way to support us at all, all of the pages of our, our website that have. Uh, that have information about the books, they all have links to purchase the book, and those are Amazon affiliate links. So if you if you're if you're going to be buying one of these books and and um, on Amazon, it's not going to cost you any more if you just click the uh, purchase book link from our website, and then anything you buy uh, gives us a little cut. Um, so I wanted to mention that uh, we've got reviews on the website, the podcast is on the website, uh, what we're reading, uh, where we're at in the, in the process is all all there. But yeah, any. If you want to support us that way, that's uh, that's one way you could you could immediately do it. 
Yeah, and uh, once again, if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast and find all of our past episodes through Apple Podcasts, the Android Marketplace, or whatever podcast manager you use. We both use Overcast. We feel like that's the uh, the best one out there. But uh, either way, if you're enjoying this podcast, please make sure to give us the highest possible ratings you can, whether that's five stars and Apple Podcasts. Share your favorite episodes on social media. Buy the books through Books of Titans website. We'll be back soon to discuss the next book, which will be Ogilvy on advertising. On behalf of Eric Rostad, I'm Jason Staples. This has been the Books of Titans podcast. Keep reading, keep listening, and keep improving. Keep it real.